Last year I, I, I celebrated my 50th year being my own boss, running my own business. And mind you, I could tell many a, a yard over them years. Long ago, if a woman or a girl was singing into a bar, she was the talk of the parish. There's some change now. You can't imagine we'd have more women drinkers now than men. And there's no remarks passed. But then that's the change of times, of course. That makes all the difference. The change they have, their pound is as good as anyone else's pound. And they're able to hold the drink just as and well. And they're well able to carry the old jar. No bother to them. What amuses me about public house scene is the people today, I reckon, now I, I'm jumping from yesterday to today, like, um, there was better point of stout in them days. I don't know how it could be because I, I, rem- <laughs> I remember the the compartments of stout would be down the back and to clean the beer lines which were lead. It was a lead beer line in them days and you pulled the pressure on yourself to pull the point. You used to clean it out with caustic soda to clear it and then to sweeten it so it was, the first fellow wouldn't get poisoned. <laughs> you, you pulled ullage through it, which was the drippings of the barrels, to sweeten it, and then you got your point. <laughs> they all reckon it was that the stout in them days, so they, I don't know after that, but I remember that kind of scene, you know. And it must have been deadly kind of stuff, so... Oh, but you, oh, why should the old grave diggers used to mull it and all that? You know what mulling it is, Steve? But a hot poker is it? Yeah, they'd, get, they'd sit around the open fire, which is at the back of the shop, and uh, they'd put the poker in, and they'd have their point... And the poker would get white hot and they'd stick it in and the smell of the thing was something shocking. <laughs> and they drink this thing down and smoke their pipes and they thought they were being healthy. <laughs> I think I'm upset. <laughs> a tall stool, a level and well-smoothed counter and, above all, a well-nurtured point. That was the grandfather's definition of a real pub. Never mind your mock hued or ceiling beams, Dickensian ingle nooks, plastic coach lamps, carpets, books and barmaids and all that nonsense. Stool, counter, point. Say no more. Now, the grandfather was a seasoned, thorough-paced, four-points-a-night man, every night. He was a serious connoisseur, both of a good point and a good point's appropriate surroundings. And, as he frequently and emphatically observed, a point was a point, pure and simple. It required no highfalutin and overblown appellations such as the frothy nectar of the gods, the blonde in the black skirt, Uncle Arthur's heavenly brew, ah, the tasty little priest in, the little black lady from the Liffey side, all, all that sort of stuff. And all other such nonsensical bullshitteries didn't go down well with the grandfather. Similarly, he frowned upon cider sippers, crossword doodlers, moths, backslappers, young ones, barroom tanners, half-arse comedians, political gargglers, jitterbuggers and lounge lizards. Such messers and insufferable triflers were the course of any decent pub. A grave and dignified simplicity was all that was required for the ancient art of pointing. Vincent Caprani's grandfather is obviously a man who knew a good pint, and indeed, once a city pub gets a reputation for serving a good pint, the discriminating drinker will go there with his friends to discuss the merits of this particular one compared with the one down the road. In any case, whether it's a city pub or a country pub, the drink is still the water of life. 
It's a kind of medium of exchange, a ritual, a lubricant for talk, a tranquilizer, or indeed an inspiration. And when I say drink, I also include coffee and mineral water addicts. The conversation, the lore, the songs, the stories, the ballads you hear in any Irish pub depend on the customers, who may be poets, politicians, peasants or peddlers. But when you meet a poet who is also a professor, the son of a publican, with the name Brendan Kennelly, you'll expect a good yarn in verse, and you won't be disappointed. Timmy, thank God, a respectable man, Maloney said, kicked the bucket when the weather turned bad. Timmy was named for the habit he had of offering thanks to the heavenly God every minute and hour of the day for whatever advantage came his way. If he sold a calf, he'd close his eyes and lifting his face to the silent sky, say, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, and slip the money into his pocket. If a brown penny made him feel good, he'd storm heaven with gratitude. But he died at last in a winter's night, and I was there to lay him out. After he died, he was twisted and crumpled up in the bed, his mouth agape, his legs astray, his head hanging out over the side, limp as a fish on a river's bank. I straightened him up without delay and called his wife, May Nan, to have the boiling water ready to shave the black stubble from his face. May Nan was flying all over the place, worried to death after losing her man, who had always offered thanks to God for favours received. But to give it her due, she got the kittle of boiling water for me. With an open razor in my hand, I shaved the face of Timmy, thank God. Sweet Jesus, Maloney, said May Nan, you're one decent Christian man to put yourself out like that for me. Menan says I, tis a privilege. Any man should have the pleasure of a last shave. And if you look at your husband's body, you'll agree that he's looking better already. She looked, and with wonder in her eyes. Ah, he's better now than ever he was, she said. Twenty years a younger man, and, he's, and when he's rigged out in his habit, he'll be younger again, I have no doubt, but that he'll be as handsome as the day he married me. There and then, with Maynan gone out, I stripped my man, balls naked, to put his habit on. It was made of the best material, the kind of stuff that'll wear well, even in the grave, where fashion is not important for men and women. After stripping him, I got the surprise of my life. I could hardly believe my eyes. The naked corpse of Timmy, thank God, lay there before me on the bed. What rattled me, though, was that Timmy had got a small bag tied round his you-know-what. As neat as ever you'd wish to see, innocent as the flowers of May. Very delicately I untied the bag and looked inside. A feather would knock me on the ground as I counted out five hundred pounds in fifty-pound notes. I looked at my man, dead as yesterday's love in the bed, and I thought, no wonder, Timmy, that you could be always often thanks to God and finish your days pious and cute with a bag of money tied to your flute, grateful to God for life's poor dregs with the bank of Ireland between your legs. But I'm not the man to find fault with you. Far from it. It takes every kind to make up the world of men, and I'll not say who's right and who's wrong so long as I've time for a drink and a song, because I am blind, oh Christ, how I'm blind and ignorant of what the next minute will find. The next minute I called Menan and gave her half the cash in her fist. I said, good woman, be grateful to Christ. I am, I am, she cried. Oh, tell me where it came from, though. Menan, I said, be grateful for what God has given you. That's all you've got. That money is from the very source of life. Oh, wisha, she said. Don't addle me. I'm a wife no longer, but a widow in black, compelled to suffer alone, every knock and shock that life can offer. Never mind, I said. 
although he's stretched and shaved and dead, your husband was a Christian man and will leave you enough to see you through. Her eyes were glad. Maloney, you know, he was fond of his halfpenny, but in his way he was always thinking of me, maybe. And now I must plant him under the sod. Ah, thank God, sighed the widow of Timmy, thank God. Well, Brendan Connelly, you know, that's not one you'd hear in a city pub, is it? Is it mainly down south, southwest? Well, Padraig, I'd say you'd hear you'd hear that mainly in in, in Kerry and Cork and Clare and and Galway and places uh, west of the Shannon or south of the Shannon. But you hear you hear stories in pubs everywhere. But I grew up in a pub, and these old stories that I put into a book called Maloney Up and At It were all told to me, every one of them, about uh, wakes and weddings, football matches. Many of them, of course, having to do with the drink, and uh, uh, a lot of. Of course, drinking has changed a lot. In the 50s, uh, when I was growing up at home and filling pints for fellas, I do remember things like drinking competitions. And uh, there's a man down there still in my brother's pub in Ballylongford. His name is Young Ned, Young Ned Connor. Young Ned is only 70, 72 years of age now. But he had a drinking competition with another man called Matty O'Mahony. And uh, Matty won it, actually, in Con Broston's pub in my van. Um, Con Broston was the famous old footballer. And they set out drinking one Sunday uh, and into Monday morning. And one Matty drank 66 pints of Guinness. And the other man, young Ned, drank 62. So that was the kind of thing. And it was talked about. And it was talked about with admiration. If you like, there's a kind of innocence about it. And that innocence was inseparable from the connection between the drink and the stories. Um, Now, it's easy, of course, to underestimate any human misery that went with the drink and you should never forget about that but there was an, there actually was another side to it, a, a side of extraordinary gaiety and with the gaiety went the irons and I do recall fellas sitting down about 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening and maybe going on then until 3 or 4 in the morning but uh, on the whole the, this, the, the storytelling went on you know, right through the night and I often put down a pan of sausages at five or six o'clock in the morning for fellas after a night's drinking and, and storytelling. And as I say, that's where I got these, these yarns which uh, I've written about. pubs that time. If you're seen going into a pub that time, it was a crime. So what you do is we used to all go to Keevness. Now, it's 12 miles from Galway to my place, and we used to come in here to Galway. Now, we had the Astair, we had the Commercial, we had the Hibs, we had the Hangar, and we had Seapoint, one of the finest ballrooms in the country. So that's how we used to spend the Sunday nights uh, round Galway. And you'd have the girlfriend with you, that's all, and there was no such thing as a cup of tea after that. You wouldn't have the price of... You were lucky enough to have the price of the dance, and the dance was uh, one and threepence that time. Threepence tax, I think. I think it was one and threepence tax there was the price of the dance. So that's how we got on at that particular time. Well, apart from the dance, then, where would you go with the girl? I mean, where would you bring her? And would you buy sweets when you went out? No. In, in the courtship now, I'm talking no, there about... Was, there was no such thing as sweets at all. The old way that we used to do it in, in the, the old-fashioned days was the first hay barn you come across on your way home. And if you didn't come across the hay barn, it was a cockatoo or something. 
and you spend your night quoting there and after that you went home. There was no such thing as tea or anything at all because they hadn't the price of it. So it was that's the that was a routine that time. So that's the way I got on anyhow. The dance halls in them days had a light and bar. And I'd go in there with my elbow on the counter. And when the dance was over, she'd come back to me. And she might have a mineral or she might have a gin and tonic. And when that was over, somebody might say, come out and do this dance. Gone again. And like the song, I said, I don't care who's dancing with you tonight, but I'm taking you home. Mm. <laughs> and you always did that, Joe. You always All did my life, home. yes. Yeah. And enjoyed my life at that. But as you say, you never went far enough then to get married. No. But I'll tell you a little story that happened to me now. <laughs> I was going to the nice girl, and we had to pass by my house to take her home. And this night, it was spilling rain, and we were sheltering outside under a tree. And I said to the girl, come on inside while the rain is on. I will not. I'd never met your parents, and I won't go in. So my father and mother were in bed, I told her. They may come in, they're in bed. Our house was a country house, and never without a mouse. But my mother was a keen mouse trapper. She'd get her trap and put a bit of cheese on it and put it in under an old sofa that she used to sit in. I got good of the girl to come in and sit down in the armchair. And I wasn't happy that I sat in beside her. With the heat of the fire and my bad intentions, I put my hand on her knee. And in them days, cashmere stockings and garters were the fashion. Got me hand and put it on her knee and under the garter. And she shoved back me hand and the garter went down with it. Me father says, Bridget, slip up. There's a mouse in the sap. <laughs> Out me mother came and caught the two of us. That was the way I introduced me girl to her mother-in-law to be. <laughs> and it never happened. Not yet. There's one thing about a late marriage. It doesn't last long. Do you think that's a good idea? I'd like a little drink after that now. Well, apart then from yarns, Brendan, I mean, what about the topics of conversation, say politics, sex and religion? Were they, you know, very common topics in the country or were they for the yuppie pubs in Dublin? Well, of course, the range of topics in a country pub would be quite enormous. Um, but on the other hand, it would be limited. Let's put it like this. You would very rarely hear discussions of abstractions or ideas or anything like that. But on the other hand, when they'd be talking about uh, politicians or footballers or drinkers or fishermen or labourers or good workers... You'd get more ideas about work, politics, uh, love and religion 
than you would from people who would be using an abstract language. Uh, the interest was mainly in uh, football. Um, and now I know there's people, some people say that, there's, that football can be greatly boring. And I, uh, perhaps it can. But it was never boring to me because it concentrated on the personalities of the people and the way they would talk. And the footballers themselves were frequently great talkers. I remember one man talking to me about sweat one night. He was a Kerry footballer. And he said, there's a terrible movement ahead now, he says, with all this showers and things like this, he said, washing the sweat off your body, he said. But of course, he said, that should go back into your skin, he said. That's what makes the skin tough. And he was going on like this, and he was talking about how he could make himself tougher for the next encounter. Now, again, what strikes you, if you look at it, is the kind of innocence and the mythology that they had about their bodies, how to get fitter, how to get tougher, how to bait the corkmen. And this sort of thing went on and on all night. Now, the other thing about the religion... I, I mean, on the one hand, you had this, uh, you know, this tolerance of it and this apparent observation of it. But frequently then in the conversation, the conversation was riddled with what I would call pagan ideas or pagan sentiments. And you had, on the one hand, a fairly docile or tame observance of rural Catholicism, which was sort of superstitious and kind of innocent. But on the other hand then, you'd hear sentiments which were purely pagan, if by paganism we mean a complete enjoyment of the natural life. And the sexuality in such cases was quite unbridled, and the stories told about fellas and girls in... Uh, hay sheds and other comfortable centres of enjoyment around the parish were terrific. I'm going out tonight And I'm going to have a skin full A pub crawl if you like But I'll be home tomorrow night I was on the booze last night The same again this morning and if I don't make it home, I'll be there before the dawning. Well, if I don't make it home, I'll be there in the morning. And if I don't make it home, I'll be there tomorrow night. I met this paddy bloke, and we had a few together. When the landlord, he called time, we was right under the weather. He came across to me and he said, get out your dosser. As I wobbled to the door, oh, I never get the tosser. But the fellow walks into the lounge from one in the morning, right? And he's after having a row with the old board. And he comes over to me and says, you're having a point, you have. And I said, I'm willing to you. He says, I have a problem. I say, what's the problem? I had a row with the board last night. I just say, ah, fuck a row. Well, you won't do that. We throw her out, right? Throw her out. What about the kids? Ah, the kids will follow you. <laughs> Are you getting the gaggle in? You have loads of money there, man. He says, I'm thinking about this. I have to stay at the hostel down the road. Well, if you don't go back to the house, she's going to keep the house on you and you lose everything. Go home when you get the few points. After you spend that few quid, go home. And throw her out. Because she'll have a bad nodding against you like a lie. Okay? She'll have a bad nodding within 15 minutes. Where 
hardly go then. She won't be worried. I slept in the Memorial Park I did one time. I slept in Fifth Smithfield. How'd you manage? Uh, Mr. Cairns took me in and looked after me. See, uh, what about solicitors? Tony, cutting yourself. They're going to cost you money. They'd be taking the children's allowance bill off you. They'd be getting rubber. Okay. Oh, I said, you have 40 quid there, and let's get stuck into this, and we'll talk about it when we're going home. We won't have any money left, but neither, neither will she. Okay. Are there many women or fellas come to you for advice about women, Joe, when you're having the pint here? Ah, oh, you'd be surprised. And all young boys, all young boys now, around 30, you know, in, in around that area. And they do be sick from drink. See, these boys shouldn't be allowed to drink. They shouldn't be let out. They should be at home with their women. Well, no, not really, because the women, if they're sitting at home, the women is out. I was down in a, a, a place the other night there, and I was surprised. So the whole of all our married mothers and deserted wives and all, we chased the place, was lighting up. <laughs> the place was a fire, it was. And I, I won't say this over the, over the air, but it was fantastic, you know. But that's right, that's the advice I to give to them fellas. When they come in here and they have 40 quid in their pocket of a Monday morning, before they get drunk, throw them out. Because as soon as they hit that house after dinner with drink on them, there'll be a little blue van standing outside the door and they're gone. They've no money, they're sick from drink. <laughs> and she locks the door on them. <laughs> and does that happen now to a good few people, Joe? That happens every second, young fella. After a feed of drink, these people shouldn't be out drinking. They should understand me. Well, Joe, you're very slow in that pint there, but I think I'll put another one up for you. Oh, should I help me drinking and talking to you? There's a great appreciation for a good story in Dublin pub. I heard one there the other day, I thought it was very good. Um, uh, I was down in Ring's End and, and one of the lads was telling me that a guy across the road, an unemployed man standing at the corner, sees a friend of his coming down the road with a greyhound on a lead, a very skinny, downy-looking greyhound, and uh, probably didn't want his neighbour his friend like to get, get ahead of himself, and he says, oh, hey, Jim, he says, where did you get the, the, the dog? And Jim says, I bought it from the tinkers, the knackers, or, and he says, yeah, and how much did you pay for it? And paid so much for it, and, yeah. What are you going to do with it, he says? I says, I'm going to race in Shelbourne Park tomorrow night. He chases you, and from the looks of it, you'll have no bother beating it. You know, and it's this kind of uh, quick remark that, that you appreciate, um, and they're flown around the plate. They, they are they are kind of, uh, it's a kind of wit, I suppose, that grows out of the experiences of the people. Uh, a great appreciation for the quick retort, or the, or the unconscious humour, like the... the, the the little lady that's trying to, little old Charlie that runs into the butchers and Moor Street sort of, and, and is trying to get a little bit of value for money and says, uh, Mister, would you give us a sheep's head, please? Uh, and could you cut it as close to the arse as possible? You know, which is, a, which is a very clever way, I think, of trying to get the maximum amount of meat from a sheep's head. And, and you hear all these things being recounted, you hear them as they're happening. Um, which is what I, I love about it. You can sit there with your, your ear sort of um, extended and pick up so much, much uh, 
colourful ways of putting things. And of course, the great thing about, about these Dublin pubs is people wander in from all parts of Ireland and you might meet an old jockey or a soldier or somebody who was, who, who played for Home Farmer Waterford and um, will tell you stories about, uh, about football and about sport. And again, like the great thing about a pub is that it's a genuine culture. I mean, people's idea of culture is that it must be sophisticated, refined, and spoken with a posh accent. Whereas, I think the true vitality of culture is often smelly, tipsy, and uh, outrageous, and full of opinions that are range from the fascist to the truly compassionate. That's the kind of energy and the kind of company that you get in, in the pubs in Dublin. And um, then, of course, a man can start up singing. One of the perhaps disturbing aspects of, of the pubs, the aspect that I didn't like, was singing forbidden. Now, that is a main point of contrast between the city and the country pub. In the country, you can start up singing any time at all you like and any kind of song. But in the city, in some pubs, it is seen as an intrusion on the privacy of the other drinkers. And I think that's a pity. But on the other hand, there are places where you can sing, of course, as well. Mary, Mary, you sang it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mary sang that, yeah. and she sang it very well too. Johnny was born in the mansion down in the county of Clare. Rosie was born by the roadside Somewhere in County Kildare Destiny brought them together On the road near Kilarglin one day Need a bright paisley shawl she was singing And she stole his young heart away Oh, she sang me Tonight by the campfire Come with me over the hills Let us be married tomorrow Please let me whisper I will What if the neighbours are talking Who cares if your friends stop and stare You'd be proud to be married to Rose who was reared on the roads of Kildare She said, meet me tonight by the campfire Come with me over the hill Let us be married tomorrow Please let me whisper, I will What of the neighbours are talking who cares if your friends stop and stare? You'd be proud to be married to Rosie, who was reared on the roads of Kildare. If you're going to a pub and uh, you're sitting down and you're having a drink, they might serve you the first drink, but they tell you they won't serve you the second. So you have to go. So then it's the next shop, and then it's to the next shop. So 
You could be all night looking for a pub to get into, and you wouldn't get served. So but if you got one drink in each of them, you wouldn't be doing badly. <laughs> well, usually, sometimes you wouldn't get one drink in them. They'd kind of, uh, there'd be uh, bouncers at the door, and they'd tell you that you couldn't come in. So there's only one or two places you'd really get into. So, and you'd have to travel miles then, because I know an awful lot of travellers have to travel miles to get drink, you know. And then there's a lot of other travellers that just um, have this certain kind of a pub that they usually go into and they know for a long, long time. But that might be just one traveller then, or two travellers, that'll go into this certain pub. You were asking about the characters, eh? Oh, God, there's one. There's one great fella, too. <laughs> the, the lads round here are they're great. Do you know, they're not, they're, there's not one comedian among them. Do you know, but it's things that, it's good, honest to God, fun they do have. You know, one of them they call <laughs> they call them. Do you know what they call The Explorer, they call them. Do you know why they call them The Explorer? Because uh, he's he, a metal detector or something. No, no, because <laughs> he went to Belfast one, one weekend. <laughs> After I've gotten the story goes about him coming back from Belfast, you know. <laughs> and it's a fairly well he, he left school when he's about nine or ten, but he still he reads a bit, you know. <laughs> when he was coming back at the border, didn't the custom man stop him and says, Come here you <laughs> And the explorer says, Oh me, I see you, see have you got <laughs> and the declare what do you mean, Nasty? Have you got any pornographic literature on you, you know? <laughs> the explorer. Oh, no, I haven't seen. What in the name of God would I be doing with that? Sure, I haven't even got a pornograph to play it on. <laughs> oh, no, you could go on and on about them now. You see that graveyard up the road there? It's a very lonely looking place. Is that uh, one that's preserved oh, now that's by Ann Tasker or what? That's the only one here. No it's very ancient goes. looking. It doesn't oh, look it as, if, as if it's ever being used now. Oh, no, no. It's used. It is used. It is used. Sure, people come now from America. Yeah, but what do they come for? Looking for the roots, is it? No, the what? The roots. No, no. They're, they're, what, what, what's the word? Their ancestries. Aye, that's what they come for. Looking for where they came from. Do you know what I mean? And they'd be coming out like they're, they're, they give. They're, there's one man looks after it. Actually, he's a bit of an old lad. He's, he's not a soft man, you know, but he's... Ah, uh, he's a different poor old devil. Well, <laughs> I, sorry, excuse me laughing to myself. I'm thinking about an incident that happened with him a couple of years back. There was a, a group of Americans was over, and they were all looking for different ancestors, you know. And he was showing them around, like he was saying, there's the neighbours are there, like, you know, there's the brophies are there, and there's the cardinals are there now. <laughs> and all that. And he go around the whole, about two hours going all around the headstones, pointing them out, you know. Well, that's it, you see. That's where they all are. <laughs> and, you see, if God spares me, I'll be here myself one day. <laughs> <laughs> Ireland's going through a change at the moment where, if you like, people are committing themselves to material values and they have to live in a certain special kind of way of, that shows achievement, that, that you actually are making progress. And this in itself 
puts ruthless demands on people so that they are under pressure a lot of the time. Now, many of the drinkers that you meet in the, the city centre pubs are people who have opted out of that, and they are not... Um, they are not under pressure and they're determined not to be under pressure and as you know well there's no company like the company of a, an easy man or an easy woman that is a person who has who has deliberately said I'm not going to be pressurized by the world because that person can relax and one of the things that I will never forget about growing up in a pub and then going on to Dublin and meeting people in pubs in Dublin and in England and in America is that you tend to meet people who can actually relax and have a conversation. Now that's, it's getting rarer and rarer that people can sit down. I mean, how many people, even when they're writing letters to you, they'll say, yours in haste or I'm in a rush. Or, I mean, pathetic little attempts at communication are laughable. And then when you meet a decent man or a decent woman who has the time to relax and say, let me tell you about what it meant to grow up in Hackball's Cross and two miles at the other side of Balnaslow, that's a lovely opportunity in the atmosphere of a good problem. Definitely from the word go, I was horse mad and farm mad. There's no two ways about it. Mother used to be absolute despair of me. We'd see a horse and I'd say, I have to go and look at a horse. It'd be about three or something like this. And I'd drag her over to see this horse. And wherever we went on the beach or anywhere, we'd have to go and ride the ponies and things, you know, all the usual things. She'd never get me off them. A lot of people now who don't know much about the people who mix with horses, but looking at them from afar, they often say that they even become... They Quite don't like them. Horses in a way. <laughs> I don't know about me looking like I wouldn't be surprised. I've got two big front teeth anyway. <laughs> and another thing I always suffer from is that I'm always falling off and breaking my specs. And you've noticed I've got my specs on today. They've got a great lump of stuff holding them together, waiting on some new ones if the optician had ever hurry up and get me them. <laughs> so, uh, that's one of the disadvantages for horses. <laughs> now, girls who are into horse riding and all that, uh, they're supposed to use very strong language. Oh, yeah. Is that I, true? Uh, uh, it is, yeah. Well, I do anyway. Mind you, I don't think it's that strong. I mean, I do say bloody quite frequently. <laughs> well, do they not say anything stronger now than bloody? Say if you fall over a ditch or something. I say, oh dear, I have hurt myself very much. And then I go, oh shit! <laughs> I, I do a bit of riding, but like Aunt Tunes into this riding club thing, but I'm not a fanatic. I just go along the road and back again. <laughs> what other things now do you like about down on the farm? Well, I like I like the sheep. I love doing the sheep. I'm really fond of sheep, especially lambing time. I love it at lambing time. You get a great sense of satisfaction when a yo produces a lamb, and perhaps she might have had a bit of bother and you've given her a hand, and you just think that if you weren't there, he might have died. And that's it's great, that. It gives you a real buzz. Well, would you wait up then during the night like a midwife? Yeah, that? I've done that a few times, taking it in turns with the auntie, get up at four in the morning, and sometimes you get some little sod who just won't suck, and you have to go out about four in the morning and give him a bottle or try and get the yo to stand while he has a suck. But it's very rewarding, it's great. I, I like it. Now, suppose there's difficulty then in a birth. Is there anything you can do if... Uh, say, there isn't a vet nearby. Well, Auntie never gets a vet. Well, hardly ever gets a vet to a yo. She does it herself. She puts her, she puts her hand in, in the yo and she generally sorts out the legs and the tails and the heads and brings them out in the right direction. But it can be, you know, the lamb can, get, can die if it's, if it's inside for too long and the yo is straining away. We had one there at Christmas. We were surprised the lamb lived because she was straining. It was a very big lamb. She was straining for a long time. 
in the end, Aunt Tumor said, I better have a look at her. So she pulled out this yoke and I said, oh, dead. And I went to pick it up and... <laughs> he was OK. He's a great big ram lamb. He's horny devil. No, he's, he went to meet his maker a long time ago. He's probably ended up in somebody's dinner plate by now. But he was a big horny fella. That was his problem. His horns got stuck. He couldn't get out. <laughs> Mary, you're going to sing a solo now. Well, you're not giving me much of a choice now at the moment, Boric. <laughs> it's a bit... Um, I'd like a few, a few practice runs now before I start, but anyway, I, I will sing. I'll sing a song for you. I'll, um, I'll sing The Rose of Allendale. Very nice. And I would ask the, the large crowd that we have here to join in and give me a hand in the chorus. The sky was clear, the moon was fair, no breath came o'er the sea. The sweetest singer in Beltorgan. Well, you were asking me what uh, type of client I'd have, you know. I, sometimes I do have characters, you know. But with one good summer stay there we were in, and there was a few lads in off lorries, and they were parching, drinking pints. Great. But this fella came in anyway, and he asked me for a pint. So I filled him a lovely pint, and I put a shamrock on it and all, and gave it to him. And, he put his hand in his pocket and he rooted out all he had and threw it up between sand and hayseed and pennies and shillings and tenpences. He said, take it away there. So I went ahead anyway to count it and sure, there was only 49p in it. And I says, hey, Mac, says I, a minute here, says I, you're short? <laughs> I'm not short, you see, you are, see. <laughs> <laughs> and away with him out the door. Yeah. Having finished the pint. You haven't finished the pint. Oh, haven't finished the pint, you know. He got the best laugh I heard for a long time in the shop. So, no, that, that's it. There was another one about Foster Supervisor. This fella said to me, uh, came in for a pint. And he says, Brian, any wig and I mean, put that down to me, you know. 
So I went down and had a look at the old book and I saw where he owed a few quid and a big red stop. The missus writes it, she hates you, she won't give credit to anybody. So anyway, uh, he says to me, uh, he had the pint drank, and he says to me, give us another one, Brian, you know. She says, I wait till I tell you, the one you're after getting, I hadn't room to write it down. And she says, I, I can't write it down. And she says, I, I can't give you another one, I've nowhere to put it. And she says, I to him, she says, I, yeah, I can't afford to give it to you anyway. She says, I to him, what's the see? I tell you what, she says, what do I owe you? You owe me eleven pounds, yeah. I'd owe you a whole lot more now, only you're so bloody mad. See? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. That was old Bert. I was going to say, Lord, I'm still alive. Off the beer now, thank God. All I have now is one little dog. That's the only company I have. Then I come into Breda Fitzpatrick's house every night for a few drinks and meet the local people and tell stories and listen to stories. Now, when you were a young fellow way back home with the mother, did you have a dog then, too? Oh, yes. I was fond of shooting and kept dogs. But my mother's only companion was a cat. She taught the world of this big, black, tom cat. But, of course, when he came to the use of reason, he wanted to travel like myself. <coughs> so, when I go out, the cat had get out too. And this day my mother said, I'll have to get you or the cat to stay at home. And a neighbour told me that if I got the cat regulated, he'd stay at home at night and wouldn't run. So I said to him, better get the cat regulated. I put the cat in a box and started to Rossbury to a local veterinary surgeon. I asked him, would he regulate the cat? Certainly, he said. No trouble. I brought my cat in over the box and put it up on a bench. And he gave it a few whiffs of chloroform. And the cat fell asleep. He says, hold it by the hind legs now. So with the purpose and the little pliers, he relieved him of his ornaments. He said, put him back in the box and he'll be all right again your home. I said, thank you, Mr. Burke. Out in the door he was going when he said, by the way, Chair, that's a pound. And pounds were very scarce in my youth. So I had to cycle home without a drink. Nor hadn't the price I wanted to go into Fitzpatrick's. I put the cat sitting at one side of the fire. My mother was at the other side and I in the middle, with my head in my hands, half asleep. You're very quiet, Chair. And so is the cat. Or what are you thinking of? Well, I don't know, says I, what the cat's thinking of. But I can tell you one thing. If the cat had his ornaments back and I had me pound, we could go into fits and have a good night.
That's tremendous. Yeah. Thank you very much. And you'll get better and better as the night goes on. Thanks very much, Barry. Good night. Well, God bless. Happy to see you.